Hello, and welcome to Profiles, a program that introduces interesting people from Indiana, the United States, and the world to WFIU listeners. I'm Owen Johnson. Our guest on this occasion is Ken Oletta, author and media critic. Ken, welcome to Profiles. Pleasure to be here. You've written 11 books, but I'd like to start with some events in your earlier life, um, including how do you get from Brooklyn to Oswego to go to college? <laughs> Baseball coach at Oswego. Um, I had a 64 average in high school. I was not a very attentive student, a little bit of a rebellious streak, but I was a reasonably good athlete. The baseball coach visited me, wanted me to pitch for Oswego. The only school that would have me was Oswego. And, and I don't think it would have gotten in without the baseball coach's help. And how did that baseball career go? Uh, I hurt my arm. <laughs> I loved the coach, but I, I, in the end, my physical injury, you know, was not good. So did you then involve yourself in a lot of activities to I actually wound up waking up in, in college and, yeah, became active. Uh, newspaper, ran for, you know, student body president, uh, wrote a column for the newspaper, uh, was on the debate in International Relations Society. And so, yeah, I, I had a good time at Oswego. But oh. it was the only school that that I think I could have flowered at at that time. I mean, it was just – I was a real screw-up and, and um, they were patient and it wasn't very expensive to go to. And it was away from home for the first time, and um, so it was, it was a very pleasurable experience for me. What was your first job out of college? Uh, I went to graduate school afterwards um, at Syracuse. Got a master's. It was in a PhD program. I, I got a master's, and then I stopped and went to work for a guy by the name of Howard Samuels, who, as a speechwriter and code holder, a guy going to run for governor, he was a businessman, Democratic businessman. And uh, so your master's degree was, was political, political science. science. And so it makes sense to go into there. I noticed that you spent some time um, doing some other things related to politics, I suppose, or maybe one should say policy. Um, what about the Peace Corps? Well, I, in graduate school, I was a Peace Corps trainee. I was an, a training instructor. I was in the East African Studies program. And, and um, my second year, I had a fellowship um, and part of my mission – was to help train or teach um, Peace Corps volunteers going to East Africa. How come East Africa? Where did that interest come from? I, it wasn't an interest actually. I, I kind of fell into it in that the first year I was a resident advisor at at Syracuse uh, Graduate School and I was outraged by how the administration handled the kids. They would – I think – expect us to spy on them and fill out forms that I thought were totally intrusive. So I was the editor of the uh, underground magazine at Syracuse and wrote a column for the school newspaper and exposed the forms, wrote about them. And so I lost my job, which was my ticket to graduate school, tuition, extend room board. And Fred Burke, who was the head of the East African Studies program, uh, who was a professor at the Maxwell School where I taught, gave me a, a thing to teach Peace Corps volunteers. So my second year, I had another scholarship, but it was through the East African Studies Program, which I knew next to zero about. You um, worked in Robert Kennedy's 1968 presidential campaign. How did that come about? This guy, Samuels, who I mentioned was my first job out of graduate school, 
he was appointed Undersecretary of Commerce and then Acting Secretary of Commerce in the Lyndon Johnson administration. But I was very anti-Vietnam War. So I quit and I didn't have a job. And then about three weeks later, Bobby Kennedy announced for president and I volunteered to work for him. And I was paid $250 a week to work out of New York and prepare, help prepare New York for his coming back for the fateful New York primary. He was assassinated uh, a week before, right after the California primary, so he never got back to New York. Did you ever meet him personally? Yeah, I did. I mean, he would not have, I think, recognized me on the street, but we spent an entire day together in 1967. I was the executive director of a program he had supported. I was the only one as executive director in the state doing this to try and get the Democratic Party to engage with youth and be more idealistic and community affairs oriented. And we went around the state on his plane, the Caroline, which is John Kennedy used as well, with Pat Moynihan at the time, I remember. And Bobby Kennedy would introduce me to speak. This is this is my, I was 25, 26 years old to talk about the program we're doing. And then we couldn't land in New York that night. Uh, so we landed at Logan Airport in, in Boston. And he could see I was really depressed. It was really depressing to work with these Democratic uh, Party bosses and, and who just – they didn't care. They were humoring the senator. They, they really weren't committed to what I wanted to do. And he could see I was really depressed. And he, he had this real intuitive feel for people and, and he put his arm on my shoulder and we walked in the uh, waiting area of Logan Airport and he said, I want you to hang in there. And I remember feeling – I mean this guy didn't know me again, wouldn't recognize me afterwards I think. But I stayed on for several months just because of that hand on my shoulder pep talk from Bobby Kennedy. And then I ultimately quit. It was impossible. Politics in New York was different in those days when you think of names <laughs> like Harriman and Rockefeller and um, – do you pine for those old days or – Well, there were people who were you know, more impressive I think than uh, most politicians we have in New York today. I mean you could make an argument that Mayor Bloomberg is a pretty impressive guy. He's been a good mayor. But you know, in general, you know, we, we have – I think they're more lackluster than they once were. What was it that excited you about politics that you did spend at least a few years involved? I wanted to change the world and I thought politics was the, the way to do it. And I didn't want to run for office but I wanted to work in either as a diplomat or uh, in government. And I did for a number of years and, and then with my help, the candidate I ran – I was campaign manager for Howard Samuels again for governor in 1974 and with my help he lost and then I was – I said, I, you know, I got to try something new. I don't want to be a vagabond in political campaigns. I was kind of dispirited by politics. So I went back to journalism which I had done some of before and in, certainly in college and graduate school. How do you get back into journalism or how did you to get the, the verb right here? Well, actually what I did uh, at the time was I freelanced. Uh, I, the woman I was living with who married, who I married and is still my wife, she had a job in, in advertising and I was getting paid, you know, $350, $300 a piece for the Village Voice and for other places to freelance. It would take me weeks to do. So I wasn't making much money and she, she was the ink, the breadwinner and the large breadwinner. So I would appear in these places and your hope was that you would do some good things and people would notice your clips and you get a job. And 
I wound up being hired in first I, I was a became chief political correspondent for the New York Post. I lasted two weeks there because the owner then was Dorothy Schiff and she didn't like I had a weekly column I was going to do and she didn't she it attacked some of her friends and she was unhappy and so I left the post and I went to Village Voice. Um, eventually wrote a political column for them called Running Scared and wound up writing longer pieces for New York Magazine. The New York City fiscal crisis hit and I was covering both for The Voice and and New York. And, and I've been in journalism since. Was it 1977 you started writing for The New Yorker? Yeah, what happened there, yes, it was. What happened was that Rupert Murdoch, did a hostile takeover of New York Magazine and the Village Voice. I was the only one who worked at both places. And you'd been at the Post before he took that over? Yes, before he did, yeah. And, and I, like a lot of us, thought that Rupert Murdoch would, would spoil and would bring his, you know, lower the standards at, the, at New York and the Voice. And so we went on strike to try and block him from taking over New York and the Voice. It was very well, at the time, it was front page news in the New York Times, et cetera. And we lost. And so about 40 of us quit rather than work there. He wound up not changing the voice or New York magazine uh, in part because it wasn't a good business decision to change it and in part because he wasn't as involved in them as he is, say, in the New York Post today where he does – he did change the post. And I was having lunch with my friend Richard Reeves, the presidential biographer. This is before he was – he was one of the co-leaders of the strike with me at New York. And we came back to my apartment after lunch and there was a phone message. I played it. Hello, Mr. Oletta. This is William Sean, S-H-A-W-N. As if you didn't know. Yeah, as if I didn't know. And he was a longtime editor of The New Yorker and he asked to see me and and I wound up writing – starting to write for The New Yorker. Did you define your topics at The New Yorker from the beginning or was it assumed that you would write about certain things? Well, it actually at first – my first piece – was what you do at The New Yorker and one of the reasons I think The New Yorker is so attractive for writers, it's a very wonderfully edited magazine but the ideas mostly generate from the writers and I think that's one of the many secrets to its success and so my job was to come up with ideas. My first idea was to do a piece which wound up being being a two-part piece on New York City's labor contracts and how the city was managed. It was a very detailed piece. Also outrageous. It was an investigative report about you know how, how if you donated a pint of blood, you got two days off. You got five, five weeks vacation if you're a sanitation man. I mean it's just uh, unbelievable ripoffs that were taking place of the taxpayer's money and I saw it as a consumer issue. Again, try and change the world. My second piece was a profile of Mayor Koch the first year he was elected. That was in two parts. I remember doing a piece, a two-part piece. In those days, New Yorker ran two parts. So you're talking about 40,000 words. Yeah, they were long pieces. On Mario Cuomo, his first year as governor. And that's where I started doing this fly-on-the-wall type journalism where you basically watch people and then ask questions after you've exposed yourself to them and learn more. And uh, and then I wrote – I came up with the idea I wanted to write. At the time, American business in the early 80s was in – some difficulty. So I thought instead of writing why American business is trouble, I, I would go the other way and look at a business that succeeds and try and figure out why. So I did a profile of a company called Schlumberger, which was a great company with a very interesting chief executive, a guy who was a former leader of the prisoners in Buchenwald, French resistance fighter. Also got me to France 
on some trips, lived in an oil camp in the Middle East, which is kind of interesting. Then I did a piece. I, I, I came in one day to Mr. Sean and I said, Mr. Sean, something is happening with poverty in America. I don't know what it is. I don't know what the term is. But, you know, people seem angry and they're – and the, look at the people who are not in the labor force anymore and you look at the homeless and the drug use. Something is happening out there. And he said to me one of the great pieces of advice I ever got as a journalist. He said, Ms. Dolletta, that sounds like a sociological yak piece to me. What you need is a vehicle to tell your story. And I was given – next four or five months to try and come up with a vehicle and I wound up writing what turned into be my longest series for the New Yorker three-part which became a book called The Underclass about what was different about poverty in America, this hardcore group of people who had habits or behavior difficulties that would that set them apart and they didn't know how to operate in organized society. So I did – I've done many different pieces uh, of, on different subjects and now – here I am. I mean, I have a graduate degree in political science, and what I write about, write about, I write about the media. So go figure. Your life takes all these little interesting turns. How would you say if you if somebody asked you that you learned how to be a journalist because you didn't study journalism? Uh, how do you f- learn how to write? How do you learn how to report? Well, I had written uh, actually purple prose when I go back and look at it in college and graduate school. I think you do learn and you learn with good editors. Uh, journalism uh, – one, one of the disagreements I have with a lot of tech people in Silicon Valley and outside Silicon Valley is their belief that, that the blogosphere will create bloggers who will wind up one day becoming as, as trusted as the New York Times. My rejoinder is always you guys understand technology much better than you understand journalism. Journalism is not a solitary pursuit. It can be. I have Stone was a solitary pursuit. But in general, it's a team effort. It's editors and it's fact checkers and it's people who are working with you and copy editors who are making your pieces better. And and that's true at, at The New Yorker and it's true at The New York Times. And I think you need that team effort. You know, you don't have enough sources here. You buried your lead. You, it's too long. It's too saccharine. Whatever. It's not fair. It's not balanced. You need that outside help and, and editors provide that. And so editors can help teach you how to be a journalist and you've got to be a good listener to learn it and you don't get it right away and it takes time. But if if you've got reasonable intelligence and reasonable writing skill and know how most important to ask questions and listen to the answers, you can be a journalist. And then someone has to tell you what the lead is, what the headline is, you know, uh, it's too long, you know, what's the narrative? And, and then you think, you know, one of the things that Sean's story I told a moment ago about it sounds like a sociological yak piece, Mr. Oletta. What he was, you need a vehicle, he said. What he was really saying is you need a narrative. Tell a story. Don't tell me a story about the Holocaust, the old saying in publishing. Tell me the Anne Frank story. That's a story that makes it come alive. And in that telling of the story, you can put all of the contextual and other information and context that you need. You write longer um, form than most journalists do. Are there special challenges in doing that? Sure. Uh, You need time, which is a great luxury. The New Yorker gives you that. Books give you that. I actually did for – when I left, when I quit New York Magazine and The Voice, I wrote longer pieces for The New Yorker but I wrote a weekly column for The New York Daily News and I did that for 17 years, mostly on politics. And I ultimately quit 
doing that because I was very frustrated that a 900 to 1,000 words, which is a relatively long column, it was too short. I felt I was cheating. I felt like I couldn't present multiple sides. I had to compress my opinions into a shorter form and, I, and, and my reporting into a shorter form. And I, was, I became unhappy doing that. So I love the length and breadth that a, a long form, be it in The New Yorker, uh, I mean, they identify me as a columnist for The New Yorker. I don't write columns. I write pieces. And they, you know, I have one this week that's 6,000 words or, and I've written 20,000 word piece profiles of people. And books are 150,000 words. And books and longer pieces take a different organizational skill and effort than shorter pieces do. Do you have any journalistic heroes? Oh, lots. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 Murray Kempton was a great hero of mine. I knew him a little bit and I, I loved his writing. I just find he was a miraculous – he was a New York Post columnist. He wrote longer pieces for the New York Review of Books. He wrote with great style and what I loved about him and I love about some other – David Brooks, I really admire his column. I love unpredictability. I love that, that, that you're not picking up a columnist or a newspaper or watching television. And I can predict what Keith Oberman's going to say. I can predict what what um, Sean Hannity is going to say on Fox. I can't predict what David Brooks is going to say. I couldn't predict, particularly what Murray Kempton would say. So he was his real hero. Which do you like better, um, biographies or um, how shall we call them, topical investigations? Biographies, Why? which I think can be topical investigations. It's telling a story. One of the things I've learned as a journalist is that people matter and that people make decisions oftentimes for reasons that don't seem to be logical, that follow human logic. It could be greed as we see in Wall Street stories in recent weeks. It could be uh, pride. It could be panic. It could be uh, any number of very human reasons that if you're running a business are not strictly business reasons. If you're in politics, you know, we accept that those kind of decisions are made in politics all the time. But they're made in the world all the time that way as well. And uh, why did a runner try to steal that base with two out and a rally potential, you know? He wasn't given a signal to do it. I thought I could have done it, coach, right? What was that? Hubris? human. And so I, I'm always fascinated by that and I think you have a better chance of telling, looking at that human side if you have time, if you have access and if you go in looking for that, looking for not just the obvious reasons but the less obvious reasons and it makes people come alive and in making them come alive, you can tell the story of what they've done or what their business or government or whatever agency does. Your name is well known. Does that help access or does it hinder it because people know you're trying to look at all sides of an issue and they may not come out looking so so good? I, I think people talk for lots of reasons. They talk because you don't get to be – let's say you're running a media company. With, I write about – you don't get to run a media company unless you've got a healthy ego. And part of that healthy ego is a belief that you can persuade anything, anyone of anything, including this reporter from the New Yorker magazine. So I'm going to win Ken over. Uh, it's a very understandable human impulse. Secondly, uh, the fact that I come 
from The New Yorker doesn't hurt. I mean, if I came from the National Enquirer, I don't think people would let me sit in their office and do 20 hours of interviews with them. Uh, third, I have the luxury of time and space. And one of the things I try to do, because I really mean this, is convince them that, that I am really interested in understanding them. I may have an opinion. I did a profile of Murdoch. I quit working for him in, in 1977. Yet in 1995, he ultimately agreed after resisting for many years to let me do a profile of him. Why? Because he was convinced that I was really open to try and understand him and would write a fair piece. Now, I don't do a profile of anyone where I don't say in my initial encounters with them, look, if I do it my job, I promise you there will be things you won't like in this piece. Uh, but I don't know what they'll be. What do you mean I have thinning hair? Whatever it is. And I find that people respect that candor, that they don't feel like you're trying to pull the wool or seduce them in some fake way. And then if you sit there in their office and you ask lots of questions and you really seem to be listening to the answers and you really are, I think it becomes an inducement for them to talk. You've mentioned the name Rupert Murdoch. Um, you've known him for a number of years. How has your perspective on this person who has been seen as a media guru, a media bete noir, how has your perspective changed over the years? Well, it hasn't changed in terms of, of his journalism. I don't uh, – let's push aside the Wall Street Journal for a second, which he now owns. I don't respect uh, what he's done in many of his newspapers. Didn't in 97 when I – in 77 when I quit and don't, don't today. I totally admire him as a businessman. I think he's a bold buccaneer and I think he takes chances and, and be it now being out front, we have to charge for our content, et cetera, or be it what he did in England with the newspapers and he's accused of breaking the unions but the newspapers are going to go under if, the, if management didn't get more control over the unionized costs. So I think he's a very bold, interesting man. What he did with the Fox Network starting it, Fox News starting it. I don't like the product of Fox News but I, I admire his, his gumption and his risk-taking and I wish more business people had that risk-taking ability. So Murdoch is a mixed bag for me. At the Journal, I actually wrote a piece for The New Yorker when he took over The Journal predicting that he would take it down market because that was his nature. He hasn't yet. I mean, there have been instances where you see some headlines that you say well, there's a conservative influence there. But essentially, the journal still remains a, a really good newspaper. Do you see him slowing down? I mean, he's now, what, 77, 78? I think he's 79. I think he just turned 80. I, I don't see much. I mean, he hasn't agreed to be interviewed. Since I profiled him in 95, he's refused to grant me an interview because uh, he wasn't happy with that that piece. But I see him at conferences and we talk. He's a very charming guy personally. I wouldn't want to be up against him in business but he's, he's personally charming and, and smart. So I, but I don't see enough of him to know whether he's slowing down or not. It doesn't seem that way if you read the clips. I mean he's out there all the time. Let's take a break now and um, listen to some music. Um, you've chosen Bobby Darin's Mac the Knife. Why that particular song? Oh, I was a young kid and I listened and I just loved it. I like Bobby Darin and, and um, it's, I, love dan I love doing a Lindy of dancing to Mac the Knife. Bobby Darin is my favorite. Mm, two, three. Oh, the shark, baby. Has such deep feet. And it shows them 
pearly white Just a jackknife As old Mac Heath babe And it keeps it mm-hmm, Out of sight You know when that shark bites With his teeth baby Scarlet billows Start to spread Fancy gloves though Where's old Mac Heath babe So there's never Never a trace of red now Let that make it on the sidewalk huh? Ooh, Sunday morning uh-huh. Lies a body Ruling light Someone sneaking Round the corner Good that someone That was Mac The Knife Sung by Bobby Darren Music chosen by our guest on Profiles today Writer Ken Oletta You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Ken, who's the most interesting person you've profiled? That's interesting. Well, uh, one name that immediately pops to mind is Ted Turner. I did a long profile, wound up being a book on Ted Turner. He's just this great character, uh, again, like Murdoch, a buccaneer. And he, if you go back and trace his life as I tried to, and this is where biography really informs what a person does, what I learned is that Ted was a, a rebel, rebelled from his very strict, depressive father who wound up drinking too much, but who had a very successful billboard business. Ted was thrown out of Brown University, real womanizer. Father wrote a really angry letter to his son. His son wrote back an angry letter which he printed in the school newspaper. Ted comes home and goes to work for his father. He's 24 years old. After breakfast one morning, his father goes upstairs and puts a bullet in his mouth, commits suicide, leaves a note. And the note says to his best friend, I want you to sell the billboard business because Ted can't run it. He's not capable of running any business. So this 24-year-old young man who idolized his father, who used to beat his son with a hanger, by the way, and Ted would make excuses for him beating him, later to me, make excuses. Ted's mission in life was to, A, frustrate his father's wishes, which he did. He got control of the billboard company. He then took a little radio and then a little TV station and said, I can hook it up to cable and I could buy a sports team, basketball, you know, baseball, Atlanta Braves eventually, and provide content for cable. And he became one of cable's great first programmers. But always he was trying to prove his father, to his father, I can do it, Dad. See? And in his office he had covers of every magazine he'd been on. They've just blanketed the walls of his office. And it was really, see, Dad, look at this. And he created CNN. He created TNT and all the cable networks. He just was a fascinating buccaneer, but a, a man who, like his father, had some depressive moments. But just a great character. And people who work for him, say, at CNN, just revered him. And I mean, he, when they wanted to go to Baghdad for the first Gulf War in 91, his news president, Tom Johnson, said, 
it's too risky. I don't want my people to go. And Bernard Shaw wanted to go and Peter Arnett wanted to go. They were there. Arnett was there and Bernard Shaw wanted to go as an anchor. And Ted interrupted and he said, if you want to go, it's on me. You go. You're a journalist. That's what journalists do. And if you remember, that's one of the things that put CNN on the map, that 91 Gulf War. They were the only ones there reporting live from Baghdad. Which book are you most proud of? It's like asking a father who's your favorite kid. Um, but I, I, think, I think the book that was hardest for me and I think in some ways was the most important thing I've done was The Underclass where I, I tried to – A, came up with a term that hadn't been in use to describe a group of people who hadn't really received the recognition and to convey an impression that something could be done for the underclass. But first you had to accept a much higher failure rate. Two-thirds of them in the programs I had looked at had failed. And there were people who were back on the street committing crimes, taking drugs, long-term welfare recipients. They couldn't break that cycle very easily. But with some government and other help, about a third of them did. So how do you look at that glass? Is it half full or half empty? Is, is, is two-thirds failure a failure or is it one-third success a success? And that was a fascinating experience where I, I basically learned a lot but I felt like I was thinking anew in a fresh way about something and, and going in an area that had not been much explored before. You mentioned it, it started as a three-part series in The New Yorker. When did you see that this might be long enough and of a type good enough to be a book? I would guess about a year into the reporting. It was probably a two-and-a-half-year project. I would guess about a year into it. Same as the Google book. You've written a lot about business, about finances. What are the special challenges of doing that kind of topic which I mean, we've long referred to economics as being the dismal science and not terribly interesting because of all the detail? I mean I think, I think the fact that I was a, a graduate student who had to be grounded in facts and, and look for facts instructs me. I think the fact that I worked in government and politics instructs me. I know how to read a budget. And I don't just take what people say. I want to look at what they do. And, and part of looking at what they do is what's the nature of your business? Where's your money? How are you making it? What's your profit margin, if any? Um, what's your future growth prospects or not? Those become essential questions for me. And um, I don't see myself as a business journalist. I mean I, I've written a lot about business. Um, but I've written about a lot of things. But, I, but in, in every case, whatever I'm writing about, I'm trying to understand the fundamentals of it. And to understand the fundamentals, one of the fundamentals you have to understand is the budget. And, and if it's a business, what's the business? If it's a government – when I covered the New York City fiscal crisis and New York City economy, which is my first book, The Streets Were Paved with Gold, basically that was a, about figuring out the shenanigans of – city and state officials who were lying about the budget, saying it was balanced when it wasn't, which means that we were burdened with tremendous – taxpayers in New York were burdened by tremendous costs for interest rates, et cetera. 
And that to me, you know, people say that's a left-right issue if you support labor unions, if you're on the left and you oppose them if you're on the right. I think it's a consumer issue. If I'm paying more money as a consumer in taxes because you didn't balance your budget, buddy, um, I'm irate about that and I should be and that's not a conservative or a liberal issue. When you're doing that kind of, of uh, research, do you depend at all on um, I guess we might call the whistleblowers, people inside who give you inside information? Of course. You do. You know, if you're doing – if you were doing the city finances then, there were an outside citizen budget commission which was independent, would do studies that the press wouldn't report and you go back and look at those reports and then talk to those people. They become part of a seeing eye dog for you. They help you tremendously. And then you can always find people in government who will help you. I mean I remember once when I wrote a two-part profile of Mayor Koch at the end, he wasn't happy with it and he said to me, you betrayed me. And I said, what do you mean betrayed you? He said – you wrote a piece I didn't like. I said, that's not betrayal, Mr. Mayor. I said, betrayal is if I took something off the record and put it on. If I lied to you, if I wrote something knowingly false, I didn't do any of that. So I didn't like your piece. And he says, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. And I said, Mr. Mayor, I'm sorry to hear you say that, but you have 230,000 employees in the city. I'm sure I can find someone to talk to me about the city. And that's my attitude. If they want to cut you off, too bad, but you'll find someone else to talk to. I hope they don't. But if they do and, – and Koch did for a period and then he came back and talked to me and, and as I knew he would. But I think you need that – you need that confidence to say, hey, I don't work for you. My audience is not you. It's the reader and I'm going to try and tell the truth as best I can. And if you don't like it, I'll find someone else to talk to. It was interesting to hear you say you don't really consider yourself a business journalist because one list I saw had you among the 100 best business journalists of the 20th century and that would seem to be a pretty good accomplishment. I, I must ask because of the, the business journalism aspect, how you evaluate the press performance in not apparently seeing very well what was going to happen to the economy a few years ago? Dismal. You know, I, I went through this in reporting the New York City, what happened in the mid-70s with New York City fiscal crisis where New York almost went bankrupt and had to be bailed out by the federal government. Um, if you interview the reporters as I did at the time or went back and look at their reportage before the crisis hit, yes, they talked about questions about whether the budgets were really balanced but they did it in paragraph 26, right? It was buried. That was their lead and it was buried. And the same thing happened in Wall Street. There were questions being raised by reporters but they were buried low down in the stories. And part of that is reporters – part of that is understandable. We're trying to report the news and we're not trying to make the news. So that's one argument. The other argument is that, that they lack the self-confidence to say, wait a second. If someone is, is, has this kind of ratio of debt, an investment bank, isn't that a real problem? They have enough assets to cover it if something goes wrong? Or what about all the people who are talking about the housing bubble? And what are these derivatives anyway, these housing and other derivatives? And the reporters didn't do that. And partly that's a function of lack of spe specialty. I mean a lot of people you know, understand the superficial stuff of Wall Street but really can't do what say Roger Lowenstein can do or Michael Lewis can do and really explain what a derivative is is or Gretchen Morgenstern at the New York Times can and they've done some really good reporting on Goldman Sachs for instance. But in general, you ha you'd have to tax the press for 
for missing too much of that Wall Street story, and not to mention the government regulators who are, mu- who are much more culpable. You actually wrote about Goldman Sachs a long time ago, didn't you? No, I wrote about Lehman Brothers. Lehman Brothers. I wrote a book okay, about, yeah. about Wall Street and, and people have asked me, when are you going to go back and write another book about Wall Street? I said, I had enough of Wall Street. I don't want to go back to those people. You did mention William Sean a couple of times, Mr. Sean in the long tradition. Um, the New Yorker has changed or at least had a different editor since then. How has working for the magazine changed? It's had three editors since Sean left. Sean left in mid-'80s, replaced by Robert Gottlieb, who was the editor-in-chief of Knopf, a great publishing house. I was off doing a book on television networks, which took me six years, all through his five-year reign. Tina Brown then came in in 92. I had just finished that book on television networks. And she asked if I would write a column on on the annals of she called it the annals of entertainment. She wanted me to write about cable and movies and Hollywood and, and television. And I said, I said to her, I said, I, I really don't want to do it. I want to write a biography, um, which I hadn't done. I said, but I think you're thinking of it too narrow. And she was very open, a wonderful editor. And, and she said, what do you mean? I said, I think it should be annals of communication. And it should cover all these worlds emerging. It's it, uh, Microsoft and software is involved – Microsoft at the time was thinking about buying a Hollywood studio and, and cable guys and telephone guys and advertising guys and newspaper guys and publishing guys. They were all kind of coming together and, and blurring and becoming vertically integrated companies and, and, and she said, that's a great idea. And ultimately, I went off – I was going on vacation to Italy and I, I, I had said no. And I thought about it in Italy and I said, wait, that might be kind of fun to do. And I came back and I negotiated with her and to her credit, she allowed me to do it, a deal where I wouldn't write for four months. For four months, I would just go out. New York would send me on a plane wherever I wanted to go to interview people on, on a not for attribution basis to talk to them about the media and where it was going. So I interviewed heads of cable and telephone and advertising and Microsoft and people from all over that world and got an amazing education and got – wonderful story ideas, which I later used and went back and reported. And then I started writing for her four months later. She was a very good editor who did some very essential things at The New Yorker, including getting rid of some of the longtime people, some longtime people who had been wonderful in that day but were not producing anymore. And she took a lot of heat for it. Now, she made some mistakes. She had some risque covers and art and stories. But she was, she was a good editor. Uh, she was replaced by David Remnick, the current editor, who's a wonderful editor, also a wonderful writer, has a best-selling book out right now about Obama. What hasn't changed at The New Yorker through all the editors that I've known starting at Mr. Sean is this collaborative process when, when you hand a piece in, you feel they are trying to make your piece better. And and sometimes you bridle and you say, what you, why'd you cut that? Or and But they'll give you an explanation. And so I, it's just a very congenial place, an inspiring place to work. How does David Remnick manage to do everything that I, he does? I wish I knew. I mean, uh, I don't know whether it's something he eats or drinks or <laughs> – but it, 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 I marvel – a lot of us marvel at, at how he multitasks. I mean, he, you hand a piece in and he, he reads your piece not only right away or usually right away – uh, but he reads it several times before it's finalized in the magazine to uh, 
assure his quality control on everything that appears in that magazine. He writes often for the magazine and now he's just written this humongous book. Uh, I don't know how he does it. You mentioned uh, just a moment ago when you started writing about the media that you had these four months to go out and interview people. How do you keep up nowadays on what's going on in the media with change happening so rapidly? To what degree is it personal interviews and sources and to what degree do you uh, gather material from other uh, written places? It's all the above. I mean you you read. I mean I have – I do I Google where I have things pushed to me every day written on certain subjects that interest me. Uh, so I keep up that way. I read trade publications, keep up that way. Read the blogosphere, a lot of information, newspapers and magazines, keep up on that. And I'm constantly talking to people. And you know, you'll have lunches with people uh, without an agenda for a story but just – you'll ask what's going on, what's interesting, what about this? So – and then you go to conferences and you learn a lot that way. You read books. Your most recent book is about Google. Um, Google, the clash of media worlds, I think is the title. The end of the world as we know it. The end of the world as we know it. Um, what led you to that subject? Well, I, I wrote a book some years ago called Three Blind Mice about how the television networks were being disrupted by then new technology, which was cable, and and how slow they were to understand that. And here we are living in a world where the internet, digital world, is taking over is transforming our lives. And I said, what would be a good company that is actually a wave maker in the future? Google qualifies. Um, and can I look at how they're impacting traditional media, which is what I write about. I write about the media. Google is a media company in my lexicon. And can I also then write about how if I tell the Google story, can I also tell how as Google is growing – how traditional media from advertising agencies to book publishers to newspapers and magazines and television and, and movies and music, how they responded or didn't respond. So it's a two-track narrative. It's a narrative about Google, how it was formed, what the idea was and how they developed privately at first and then burst on the scene and all during that time, where was traditional media and how were they reacting or not reacting to the internet? Do you ever try to um, look at these, the media subjects from outside the United States? I just came back from Afghanistan where I'm doing a piece. For, uh, I literally have to finish it in a week on, um, on the media there. So yes. What kind of different perspective do you get outside? Well, if I, to if I said too much, I'd, I'd be blowing my, my story. Uh, but clearly the media is very different in a place like, like Afghanistan. It's a very poor country. Very little internet penetration, uh, 70 to 80 percent illiteracy so people don't read or write. So even if you had an internet, how would you do – how would you do Google search or blog or read or do you know whatever? Paper, newspapers are not much read. The new media in Afghanistan is old media in our world which is traditional television and radio and it's grown tremendously and that's part of what my story is. What do you see as your next long-form project? don't know. I, I literally don't know. I, I wouldn't frankly discuss it if I knew um, but I literally don't know. What, what happens is that I'll finish this piece and I have to go to Asia on, for Google uh, for book tour being published there and then probably before I leave or maybe just when I come back, I'll, I'll sit down with – I'll come up with some ideas. I keep a file of 
potential story ideas. Go and you, I'll talk to Remnick, the editor, and he may have some ideas as well, and we'll kick them around and um, come up with my next piece. But the, the piece I'm doing now, Afghanistan, is a big piece, and, and so I've got to finish that first. So you're going to Asia to talk about Googled. Um, as I recall, I've read recently that uh, originally it was going to be published in China as well, and that isn't going to happen. What was well, your reaction to that? Well, I pulled out of my China trip. I said, I'm not coming. Uh, basically what happened was that my English agent for overseas publication sent me emails from the um, Chinese publisher and from the, some of the press association saying um, uh, we were told by the Chinese government um, that we cannot publicize Googled or anything about Google and the press will not come to any press availabilities that we would have for a letter on his tour of Beijing. So I said, this is ridiculous. I'm not going to go then. They still wanted me to come. And I said, well, what for? I mean, I'm not coming. They then sent me a subsequent email that, that they're going forward with the publication. Then the question becomes, what's going to, are they going to cut stuff out of the book? And, you know, <laughs> you know, they may. And what recourse do I have at that point? So I said, I'm, not, I'm, I'm going to Japan and Korea for publication and, and I'm, not, I'm not coming. Do you have any control over how your book is edited overseas? You'd like to think you do, but the truth is, I mean, I got an email from someone at Simon and Schuster and said, "Have you looked at how they're have they edited and interpreted your book?" I said, "No, I haven't. I don't read Chinese." They said, "Nor do we." But when they when we published Hillary Clinton's book in China, we had it interpreted later, and we found out that they changed everything related to China in her in her memoir. So you know, closing my eyes, holding my nose, and praying. You also do some work um, with broadcast media. That's somewhat unusual for a writer. Things for PBS, uh, for the New York television stations, or at least you have in the I past. Did. I did before I started writing about the media. I don't. I don't know. But what I do in the media is is um, I don't own any stocks, media stocks. I don't take money from media organizations that ask me to come and speak and paid speeches. Um, and I do that only for credibility reasons, I mean for appearance reasons and I think that's important. So I, I, I've been offered uh, th gigs, paid gigs at television and stuff and I, and I turn them down. What's on the agenda for American mass media in the next five years? What's going to happen? It's not going to be mass. Increasingly, uh, niche media is, is taking over and um, – Network audience size shrinks. Now they still get a huge audience for the Super Bowl, Academy Awards, American Idol. But but for say American Idol, it has half the audience that the Cosby Show had in you know nineteen eighty eight. So inevitably, network audience as you have more choice, including internet choices, YouTube, Hulu, you know, search, Facebook, uh, all of which is content. If you're spending time on them, you're not spending time watching television or reading a book. So as choices multiply, inevitably uh, the size of the audience for any one choice will shrink and that's happening in print and, and in television. And then the question becomes at some point the quality – the production quality we like in a, in a series like The Good Wife on CBS which is a wonderful new show this year. If a show like that costs $4 million a week to produce or 24 which costs a lot more than that because it's an action show. Uh, 
to produce each week. How does a network with a shrinking audience and at some point shrinking advertising dollars afford to pay that? So the public will wake up at some point and say, hey, what happened to the quality shows I like? And they'll say, we can't afford it because we don't have a mass audience anymore. It's a problem. Same, it's the same, it's a mirrors the problem in newspapers. Investigative reporting, international reporting is very expensive to do. And increasingly, newspapers have cut back on both. And we pay a price for that. There have been some calls recently for some kind of government subsidy or support for news media. Do you think that's going to happen? I hope not. I don't like that idea. I mean, you know, postal rates that are subsidized is, is a form of subsidy for, for newspapers and magazines. But I think when you have a First Amendment that protects the press, I don't want the press to be the empl- perceived as the employer, as the employee of the government. I think that's a mistake. I, I want us to, to regain the trust of the public that we've lost by being independent and not being perceived as having an agenda for the government, let's say, or for anyone else. We're going to close this broadcast with music by R.E.M., End of the World. Why does that appeal to you? It's just a very heartfelt um, – Michael Stripe does a, a, a very heartfelt song there that I just – it just touches me. It's, it's um, very evocative. And so I would um, – I, when I write, I tend to listen to opera because I don't understand the words. And and it doesn't distract me. But I can listen to that song and write. It just puts me in a good mood, like Puccini does. And that brings us to the conclusion of this conversation. Our guest today, the distinguished writer and media critic Ken Oletta. Ken, thanks for visiting. My pleasure, Ron. To our listeners, we're pleased you joined us. And we close with the music by R.E.M., End of the World. For WFIU, I'm Owen Johnson. program you just heard was recorded in April of 2010. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. 
Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Christina Kuzmich, executive producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.